The Macro View, episode 35. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. All right, everybody, another great episode for you here on The Macro View in this last part of our three-part series on the origins of money. So a lot of listeners may be wondering why this is an important topic and what about it is very, very timely. So there's a few things. So first off, Venezuela is experiencing massive inflation as they print money to pay off debts that they took on uh, when oil prices were higher, expecting oil prices to stay as high as they were. And uh, as they used the funds from that oil uh, to, to, to fund the country's massive massive welfare state, uh, which in turn led to a lack of production in other areas as the oil money went out to import goods that weren't produced at home. And as the oil money dried up, they found themselves with shortages of basic necessities, which is very common in in, uh, socialist disaster lands throughout history. Then not long ago, actually not too long ago at all, the president of India, or I guess the prime minister of India, by fiat declared certain denominations of the rupee, which is their currency, no longer valid and did so in a manner that caused extreme chaos. So there's a lot of a lot of low income and middle income families in India have all their savings stashed in cash in these large denomination bills. And overnight, due to government dictate, they were all of a sudden no longer legal tender. So while they were technically allowed to go and turn them in, the government in India had not printed, or I guess the central bank had not printed enough of the smaller denomination bills, the still legal tender after this, this, this dictate to make sure that everybody was able to exchange their larger denominations. And there's supposed to be a deadline, which according to my research seems to have now been extended, but it's still at the moment caused a lot of confusion and chaos and caused markets over there to sell off and just all sorts of trouble. Then further in the U.S., the Federal Reserve Bank, the central bank here in the U.S., has expanded the money supply more over the past eight years than ever before, including in, re- in real terms if you adjusted for inflation. And very little of that money actually went towards productive activities. It was mostly used to conduct financial engineering at, uh, at the banks and at large companies. In Europe, crisis after crisis after crisis eventually drove the ECB, you know, real, I guess they, they thought that it would work if they did this, to declare negative interest rates, which is sort of oxymoronic. And there are even corporate bonds at, at, a, at one point in the European markets that, that were selling at a uh, premium to their face value, which meant they had an implicit negative interest rate. So it's kind of uh, oxymoronic. What it, what it really is, a, a negative interest rate, is essentially a reserve fee to encourage banks to take their reserves out, uh, out of the European Central Bank and go out and lend them. Meanwhile, the new president of the U.S., President Trump, is vowed to label China a currency manipulator in an effort to, I guess, create a degree of international shame. You know, I'm not sure sure what more it's it's really going to accomplish. I'm joking, of course. The point of doing so is that the World Trade Organization, the so-called free trade group, which 
just really quickly, if you need a global trade organization to set rules, you're probably not engaging in free trade. But nonetheless, the idea behind labeling China currency manipulator is to get the WTO to pay greater attention to Chinese monetary and trade policies. China, remember, pins its currency, the yuan, or some people call it the renminbi, to the dollar, and then either expands or contracts its monetary base to either inflate or deflate their own currency relative to the dollar to try to maintain a stable exchange uh, exchange ratio to the dollar. And what it's, what, what's truly ridiculous about labeling them a cu- currency manipulator is that really China is only hurting its own working class, poor and middle class citizens, if anything, and really its citizens in general. And if anything, the U.S. benefits from the cheap goods imported from China through this currency manipulation. And sure, there's some jobs lost, but China's labor costs, labor regulations, industrial regulations, and their corporate tax policies are really what provide it with the comparative advantage over the U.S. for many manufacturing jobs and and the manufacturing industries and the jobs that come along with them, I should say. Now, if the goods produced in China were mandated by the U.S. government to be produced in the U.S. and we were all of a sudden no longer allowed to import from China, consumers would either have to be willing to accept much higher prices or many of those products just wouldn't be bought and the businesses that export the know-how to China Chinese factories now having to contract with U.S. factories would likely go out of business or at least see their bottom lines, their profits contract significantly or shrink. And so we're getting a little bit off topic of the origin of money, but I wanted to start out by highlighting the flaws of having government-controlled currencies, fiat currencies, that is, as we may call them, or paper money, as others, others may call it, and how flimsy of a system it truly is. Now, with some modern and, in fact, very recent examples of what Milton Friedman once labeled money mischief. Now, when we get back from this quick message, we're going to pick up where we left off on episode 34 by or episode 34 by discussing how it was that people knew what, when gold and silver had become money, what gold and silver were worth, how it was that their exchange value developed separately from their, their use value when they were not a money, but simply a commodity that, we, that was also used as a medium of exchange, and then how essentially they became a money. We discussed that last night. Then later on tonight's episode, we will discuss Bitcoin, which has become you know all the rage. Uh, I def- For full disclosure, I own some Bitcoin myself. Not a ton, but I own a little bit of Bitcoin. And we're going to discuss the technology behind it, why some people think that it violates Mises' famous regression theorem, and therefore, why some Austrian, some in the Austrian school of economics or that, that come from the Austrian tradition say that it is not money. Why others believe that it is money, whether or not it violates the regression theorem at all. Others in the Austrian school, I should say, or that come from the Austrian tradition. And some common arguments for why it does violate the regression theorem and why it doesn't violate the regression theorem, as well as why it doesn't really matter either way. Now, we'll be right back after this quick message. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. 
That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawmen. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as An Introduction to Logic, The History of Economic Thought, Austrian Economics Step-by-Step, John Maynard Keynes' System and Its Fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western Civilization History courses, Freedom's Progress, The History of Political Thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. Okay, folks, so we're back. So if money just emerged onto the market, how was it that it developed an exchange value separate from the use value of the commodity that it was? And how was it that it became universally accepted as a medium of exchange, which we kind of discussed last night, but how, how was it that it just began becoming a medium of exchange to begin with? So, well, essentially, uh, according to the great Ludwig von Mises in his theory of money and credit, at first when money emerged or when the medium of exchange became money or when a commodity became a medium of exchange, referencing in, in his book, in both cases, the universal acceptance of, of gold and or in some cases silver as a medium of exchange, the exchange value first equaled the use value. Then as more and more people began demanding gold and or silver strictly for its exchange value, essentially Mises regression theorem states that money derived its exchange value separate from its subjective use value from experience. So people seeing in the market how much of a given commodity they were able to exchange for it and how they, they knew that it, they were going to be able to exchange for it because they had seen other people. So essentially the demand for gold and silver today as a money came from the experience of, of seeing people yesterday being willing to exchange a specific quantity of, a spe- of specific commodities, excuse me there, for this now universal medium of exchange. Now, a lot of doubters tried to pinpoint mistakes in Mises' theorem, saying that it was an infinite regress or that it was circular reasoning and that it was invalid as a result. But what Mises clearly points out, however, is that it's neither. First off, it's not circular because of the temporal factor of today's value as a medium of exchange being derived from yesterday's value of a medium of exchange. So it's not circular, it's temporal. And market participants experienced yesterday that it had this exchange value, either firsthand or secondhand. That is, they either directly exchanged goods with this commodity or they saw others exchange this commodity for other goods. And therefore, today, they knew people would be willing to do the same. 
Second, it's not an infinite regress because it's only traced back to before it became a medium of exchange. That is, before people began accepting this commodity for the sole purpose of trading it away with someone else for goods that they actually desired for their end use. Prior to becoming a medium of exchange and eventually universally accepted medium of exchange or a money, the commodity that became such was a commodity with a subjective use value imputed on it by consumers. The regression theorem only goes back to the point where it first began being traded for by people for the sole purpose of being a medium of exchange. And when people were first willing to accept it in trade, not because they desired it as an end good, but because they desired its use as a tool to then go and acquire in goods that they did want. Now, Mises regression theorem, it asserts that all money must first be a commodity with a separate use value, which held true for even our good old greenbacks because prior to 71, they were still redeemable by foreigners for gold. And prior to 34, 1934, they were backed directly by gold. The regression theorem applies to fiat currency because it was once tied to gold and therefore users of the Federal Reserve notes are willing to accept them as money because they saw other people accept them as money for goods that they wanted and witnessed that the day before and the day before all the way back to when it was backed by gold and gold all the way back to when it was simply valued for its specific end use. So this is where the controversy surrounding Bitcoin in the Austrian School of Economics comes in. What was Bitcoin's value separate from being a money? What was the use value? Was it a commodity? If not, then does it violate Mises' regression theorem? Does that discredit one of Mises' most highly regarded works of literature, the theory of money, of cred- the theory of money and credit? Now, when we get back from this next quick break, we are going to discuss that specifically in much deeper detail. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Boot Camp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. All right, everybody. So we are back. So does Bitcoin violate Mises' regression theorem or not? Now, in order to make the case uh, that it does not, 
you have to first understand the technology behind Bitcoin. That is the blockchain technology. So what is blockchain technology? The blockchain, as it's often referred to, is essentially like a giant public ledger. Now, there can be blockchain, private blockchains as well. But for the sake of this discussion, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to the Bitcoin blockchain, which is a giant, essentially a giant public ledger. This ledger has entries determining where Bitcoins and possibly other assets are being held. Now, the value behind such technology is that you can conduct third-party verified transactions with untrustworthy counterparties. Basically, in layman's terms, you don't have to know the person or count on the fact that they have money to transact with them. If the Bitcoin says it's there, or, or excuse me, if the blockchain says it's there, it's there. And if it's, and it's being constantly verified, I believe every 15 seconds, by millions of other machines that are keeping tabs on this public ledger. So the next question you have to ask yourself, in a digital age, are there virtual or digital commodities? And if so, was the commodity, what, what was the commodity that Bitcoin represented? At least I would theorize that the public ledger the capabilities of such, the ability to store digitally signed assets safely, the ability to hold escrow and know that it's there, and there are many other abilities that the blockchain provides and will begin to prove over time, is the commodity that backed Bitcoin. And in theorizing such, I would claim that, of course, yes, in a digital age, there are digital commodities. On the blockchain, when you serve essentially as an accountant verifying the ledger every so often, it's what they call mining, you're rewarded because you're contributing hash power and verification power to the blockchain. But the hash power or the energy use to, you know, the energy used to contribute to the blockchain and to verify these ledger entries is not necessarily the commodity. The commodity, I would theorize, is the actual ledger itself. It is, and we'll prove in the coming decade or so, an extremely valuable commodity, much like paper ledgers have been for, for generations. Now, at first, continuing down that train of thought, I believe the ado early adopters, the first miners, and the first folks willing to buy Bitcoin with, with other currencies that maybe were tied to gold and went, went all the way back, were, they were likely speculating on the future subjective use value of the technology and thus the Bitcoins. And that is what gave Bitcoin its early, albeit small, value. And then the Silk Road market came along. We all remember the Silk Road markets basically caused a lot of controversy because people were selling drugs on it and whatnot. And in a digital world where you can't transfer paper dollars through a computer... You know, that is, you cannot remain anonymous by paying in cash, I should say. There was a value to the combination of privacy and payment assurance. This increased the value of Bitcoin and the uses for which the blockchain had. Now today, Bitcoin, in some circles at least, is absolutely universally accepted as a medium of exchange and would therefore be a money, at least to those circles. Now, the reason that many Austrian economists may disagree, I think, is broken down into two parts. First, there are not very many Austrian economists, at least well-recognized Austrian economists, of the few that could be considered well-recognized, 
that understand fully the blockchain technology. So as such, they, they kind of write it off as not being a commodity and therefore violating the regression theorem and then therefore it can't be a money. And the second part to it is that when they when they come to that realization that, okay, maybe it is a money, they don't want to admit that, well, maybe it's possible that Mises was wrong. But then there are also Austrian economists who are just willing to say, which is bold and frankly quite possible, if my theory is incorrect about the original use value and early adopters' knowledge of this use and therefore their willingness to speculate on its future, there are Austrian economists who just say, you know, no one's right about everything. You know, Mises was obviously correct about this in his day and time, but could have never foreseen the digital age and, and the intrusiveness of governments globally infringing upon and hampering voluntary trade between people using the internet and how easy it is to track transactions on the internet, the value of privacy and all that. And frankly, there are very few people, if any of Mises' time, who could properly foresee the age of the internet and all its implications. So, you know, maybe Mises was wrong about something. Now, to me, I can see both sides. I, I can see both my argument and the potential use value that the blockchain has and the argument that says, you know, maybe Mises was just unable to foresee the future. Um, you know, foresee such a day as today with all, all the implications of the internet. I don't see the argument for it not being a money though. Like for example, you can buy gift cards to Amazon with Bitcoin and you can therefore basically buy whatever the hell you want because you can pretty much buy anything on Amazon. You can even buy groceries on Amazon. So even if your grocery store doesn't accept Bitcoin, you can buy Amazon gift cards and buy groceries on Amazon, get them delivered to your door. So I think that it absolutely is a money. And I think that it, it actually is, is not a great idea for Austrians to deny that it is. I think it would be a much better idea if they want to stick within Mises regression theorem to understand the blockchain technology a little bit more, to understand how it could have a use value. And remember, not everybody thought, thought that gold had a great use value. It wasn't like everybody was going out and buying gold just as an ornament. There were some people that did. There are some people that liked jewelry. There are others that didn't. But eventually, that use value got separated because of all the qualities that we discussed last night got separated into an exchange value. And people who didn't even want gold as an ornament or for the use value were willing to buy gold simply to then go buy things that they wanted. Well, everybody, that's all for tonight. And that actually wraps up our three-part series on the origins of money. I hope that you enjoyed both tonight's episode and the other two episodes, the last two episodes on the origins of money. And I hope that you learned something or at least they sparked some thoughts. Do not forget to tune in tomorrow for another great episode. Tomorrow on episode 36, I will be discussing why I don't like Austin Peterson and it isn't just because he's smug and childish or some of the common things that you hear. And it's also not because I think he's dogmatic towards anarcho-capitalists, which for the libertarian movement, I think is a wrong, a wrong path to take. There is a really, really good reason why I think he is not the right person for the libertarian party and why, if the rumors are true that he's eyeing a Senate run in Missouri or Kansas or wherever it is as a Republican, why I say just let him go. You're not going to want to miss 
episode 36. I promise it will be quite entertaining. And then on Friday, we're going to begin a new series. So on Friday, we will begin uh, by we're going to be discussing how to value an investment. So for those of you out there that are interested in investing and know a little bit of my background or frustrated that I don't discuss financial markets or current events and whatnot more often, this series is really for you all. Now, to be clear, I will not be giving stock tips or investment advice. The reason that I don't do that is because I do not have any interest in having to invest more time, uh, more of my time personally, or more of my business's capital and compliance efforts beyond what we already have to. And doing something like that is, is a tremendous compliance headache. But I will be discussing how to value an investment and what drives markets and why it's foolish to make short-term predictions about where markets are headed. Now, before I let you go, I want to remind everyone to check out our show page if you aren't already listening to tonight's episode from there. It's macroviewnews.com. You can find tonight's episode right there as the first post when you arrive, so it's really convenient. And while you're there, don't forget to look for our links to our social media pages so that you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can get updates there. And there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming, updates to our tw- uh, the, the process by which we use or for which we use Twitter and, uh, and Facebook. And also while you're there, sign up for our email notifications so that you'll be notified when new episodes are available and released and so that you can be sure to never miss an episode of the Macro View. And lastly, and most importantly, do not forget to share the Macro View with your friends and your family and your social networks and wherever else you feel as though it's appropriate so that you can help me spread the logic of liberty. Tune back in tomorrow night for another entertaining and informative episode of The Macro View. Take care, folks. You have been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.